0: you're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters, my name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 138 is Marcus Reuter, a master of the touch guitar. He was a student of King Crimson's Robert Fripp in the early 90s and has put out something like 40 solo and collaborative albums, including currently working with King Crimson's Tony Levin and Pat Mastelotto on a group called Stickmen. You're right now hearing a track called Condition 4. It's from his 2017 album Falling for Ascension, but it's based on themes he composed as a teenager in the mid-80s. We will be talking about Swoonage, a track from The Truce, 2020, credited to Marcus Reuter featuring Fabio Trentini and Asaf Circus. then turning to Boone, credited to Marcus Reuter and the Matangi Quartet, from string quartet number one, Heartland, 2019. Then turning back to 2007 with a track by Tuner, which is Marcus and Pat Mastellato. The track is called 1111 from their LP, Pole. And we'll conclude by listening to a very long one, The Cult of Bibibu. It's by a group called Centrozone from 2001's The Divine Beast. For more information, please see Marcusreuter.com. For more about this podcast, see Nakedly Music.com. And if you want to support what we're doing and get an ad-free version of this episode and every other one, go to patreon.com slash nakedly examined music. I will have played a little bit of Condition Four from Falling for Ascension. The album is from 2017, but I picked that because it was you said it was based on themes composed in the mid-80s. I wanted to get Some idea of where you were starting from, I guess the elephant in the room is that about every year or so I try to have somebody from the extended King Crimson family, there was something in this melody, those repetitive patterns that reminded me of the Fripp approach. You were, as a teenager, putting these together, is that when you were in the guitar craft camp or something?
1: No, this was actually even like four or five years before I actually had any contact with Fripp and even King Crimson. I discovered King Crimson pretty late, 90, I think, or 89 It was funny, when I discovered King Crimson, it was like I discovered my tribe. So I had already been thinking and imagining those sounds before even discovering that it's already out there in a way, in some sort of form. These compositions, like Unfalling for Ascension, like all the seeds... They are from around 86, 87, when I was 14, 15 years old.
0: And so at that point, I assume you didn't start on the Chapman stick. Did you start on regular guitar and then add the Chapman stick and then add back the tapping guitars? And now you're actually, you know, have designed some of your own. Can you say a little about your progression among instruments there?
1: Yeah, so it was like glockenspiel recorder, mandolin, keyboard, only then piano, like plastic keys before regular keys. And then acoustic guitar on my, I had my first lesson on my 15th birthday. So that's why I remember it so well. And then I met Robert Fripp at a guitar craft course in 91, just before I turned 19. I hadn't touched a Chapman stick then, but I already knew I was very interested in it. And I had a personal meeting with Robert Fripp and I asked him about the Chapman stick. And Robert said that he was also very intrigued by it. And if he could start over, you know, if he was, you know, 10 or 15 again, he would, he would like to play the Chapman stick. And somehow that also contributed to my decision to actually pick it up and to take it very seriously. My research into the technique continues till this day.
0: And so your first solo album I saw, Digitalis, was 1999 recorded, right? But you were doing some recording before that. I just listened to a Europa String Choir album that I believe you played on. Were you playing guitar at that point with that, or were you playing the stick? There are two
1: Europa String Choir studio albums. The first one I'm not on, that was from 93 or so. I joined the band in 96, and then there was an album we recorded around 99, I think, which was released in 2000 on a DGM on Robert Fripp's label, and that was called Lemon Crash, that album. And that's the album I'm on, and I'm, I'm already playing the touch guitar on that, like a war guitar, an eight-string war guitar.
0: Okay, I thought I heard that sound. All right, yeah, yeah. So you discovered the war guitar around 1997. I see in 2008, you designed your own eight- and ten-string guitars. What is the advance? What is the difference between the war guitar? In other words, it's a touch guitar, sort of based on the Chapman stick, but more trebly to what you're playing now?
1: The best way to describe it to a layman is to say that really rather than going into technical details, the instrument that I designed really completely comes from the technique. So the instrument is built around the technique, where with earlier instruments, it's a little bit of the instruments have this character of still being inventions, let's say, and then the technique has to be kind of like generated for the instrument, and with my instrument, I already had like a really, really deep insight into how these instruments work or can work, let's say. And then I built the instrument. Well, I didn't build, you know, I designed it, but I built it with a luthier, with really a traditional guitar builder in Austin, Texas, and he basically created this with me, this traditional guitar instrument, which was perfectly adjusted to what I had discovered about the, the playing technique. Basically, it's represented in the details, like in how the instrument balances in front of the body, but the details like the degree of roundness of the fretboard, the shape of the neck and stuff like that. All of that plays a really, really big role once you get into a technique as fine as touch style.
0: And is it also just the location of the pickups, or had that already been kind of established? Where is the sound actually picking up on the instrument?
1: Yeah, no, it makes a huge difference, exactly. And like I came up with this idea, in traditional guitar building, it's normal that you angle pickups, right? But for example, that hadn't been done before on touch instruments. Because with a touch instrument that covers the whole possible or sensible range that you can get with strings, like from a very low note to a very high note, you need to make sure that the pickup is balanced and that the thin strings sound as full as the very thick strings. And so there was a lot of trial and error and a lot of thought that went into making this instrument like really as good as it gets.
0: All right, so we're gonna get pretty quickly here to "Swoonage," a track from the Truce, a 2020 album with you and Fabio Trentini on bass, Asaf Circus on drums. This is about your 40th or something album. Do you even keep count?
1: No, I don't. I don't keep count. You know,
0: no. a bunch of solo albums and a lot, a lot of collaborations of various sorts. Can you say anything about your approach? I picked the shortest song on here. It actually sounds from the beginning the way the atmospheric sort of fade in. Was this an edit from a larger jam?
1: No, it was actually. Play it exactly the way you hear it. This was like, uh, Truth is really a big surprise to me. It's the one album that kind of showcases me as a player. Like it's the first time that I kind of like allowed that angle. Because normally I see myself more as a, well, as a composer, as a creator of sound, as a producer. And with this album, Leonardo Pavkovich of Moon June Records, who had worked with me for quite a while with Stickman, because he's the booking agent for Stickman. And he travels with us on tour doing the merch. And he he said, Marcus, you are an amazing guitarist. We need to show people. You need to present yourself from that angle. I didn't really feel comfortable about that. But there's this series of recording sessions that Leonardo organizes in Spain Usually happens every year. And I invited Fabio, he's an old friend of mine, also a touch player and bass player. And he's just an amazing musician. I I thought, okay, like if I'm ever going to do something that showcases shredding, I want Fabio to be there because he is such a solid, melodic, beautifully inventive, like just like musical player. And so that I and Asaf could go crazy on top of what he played. And this recipe or this idea really worked out beautifully. And Truth came out as, I don't think I've ever played like that before in a musical situation. You know, maybe when I'm practicing at home. I don't know. It's really a very special kind of of shredding uh, and melodic playing. And it's sort of what I'd always imagined I would do at some point, like create convincing musical pieces purely from improvisation. And I've, I've done that before, but not letting me be as furious as I was on this recording. Swoonage is kind of like the other side. It's kind of like the soft track. That's the one for the ladies.
0: Yeah, so remarkably tasteful, given that I I was thinking like, okay, this could be on a, I had a compilation of like Guitar Hero tracks with Steve Hackett and Eddie Van Halen and just these things in a row. But you do, at least in here, save the shredding till the end. It's so tasteful. It's so, like, it's basically just a nice instrumental jazz piece with a wonderfully toned guitar melody, and then eventually you let it open up a little bit.
1: That's kind of my whole thing is that some of my (laughs) friends, they call me like the melody meister because like the melodies, they just flow out of me uh, in improvisation, but also in composition. You know, it's just like melody really is my thing. And, you know, for the more experimental stuff, and there is a lot of it, I'm sort of like forcing myself out of that role somehow to be as melodic. And like Swinders is a a great example of it's improvised, totally improvised. There's no pre-planning on my end at all just you know fabio's bass riff no like you know he played that to us like a minute before we started recording but that was all we knew
0: okay so at least the bass and drums because you could not entirely spontaneously have the bass and drums that locked in to a like the drummer would have had to at least hear the riff once or vice versa in order to do to do that
1: yeah exactly and we both heard it well like we all heard it a couple times And we also like this was special also to that album, even though it's completely improvised, it's played to a click. That was kind of like part of the concept. I wanted everybody to be on the same page somehow so that everything else could be totally free. But at least we have that one reference point, like a click.
0: Let me play just the very, very beginning, this intro atmospherics that I was thinking must have been the tail end of something. But I get the feeling you tend to I've seen videos of you where you're like playing a bunch of things and then we'll volume pedal it in. Right, just the fact that we have about three distinct notes that are coming in kind of at different spots, is that just that you can kind of volume pedal one note and then that is going to continue because of the effect you have to set up while you do the next one and the next one to set up this layer?
1: Exactly. I mean, we're talking about Truce, but also in Stickman and, and all my all my other projects, I basically also play a second role which is like a second keyboard player you could say i have my very own setup on my laptop which acts as a device for looping and so you heard those first few notes there and yeah those are played live and then they get fed into the laptop and i can mangle them and i can make them sustain can make them organically interact differently as things kind of grow it's sort of like a separate signal path to the guitar signal like for this kind of improvisation, like when you're listening to jazz rock trios, I mean, if it's like with an organ, then you have like you can have chords and stuff. But usually when you have trios, it's a little light on the harmonic side because you're lacking that fourth player. And I wanted this drony aspect to be part of truce. Even I wanted those drones actually to be quite static also. I can also do much more evolving stuff that I do when I play solo. But like for truth, I wanted things to be static, almost like a, an Indian classical composition, where you just have like two notes in the background, like repeating over and over, and then like the sitar player or flute player would improvise on top of that.
0: Even just visually, so I saw I was watching a video I will link folks to of you and Trey Gunn sitting together on a stage and doing an improvisation, and you've got. Your laptop next to you and he's got his equipment and it's very much not rock and roll. It's like two scientists with their little labs. But you know, I assume in some other performance settings, you have to be a little more subtle about that, right? You're standing up. It's a more of a traditional stage you know, have you been able to pedalize some of this so that it can at least be on the floor and not a mouse? Oh yeah, it is.
1: With Stickman, for example, which really is very much rock and roll, very loud, very powerful. I do still have the laptop on stage, but on a stand and I can operate it with my right hand, even though like while I play notes with the other hand. That's kind of like the biggest challenge is how to control the modern technology. And I found like this approach to use one hand on the keyboard better than having like more stuff on the ground.
0: I was also surprised with this one, just that that intro was so quick, that the bass and drums with the initial lead lick come in so quickly that I so many of your songs are, one of my early touchstones for this kind of stuff is Pink Floyd, where they would just have the dreamy section, and then eventually the band would come in and kind of saw away, well, this is exactly what goes on here, but it's so compressed, what, 12 seconds, so that was just because that's the nature of this project that you were really trying to tighten it up and make it not a sprawling. Yeah,
1: exactly. Like my whole idea was to not have any blank moments there. The idea is like, I wanted to be able to capture an atmosphere very, very quickly. Like you say, like 12 seconds or even less, three notes and then drums and bass kick in. Because we know what the riff is, let's say. And then we have the temp wave, the click in our ear. So it's easy to know where the one is. So there's no searching. And that was really um, special about this project. Also, if you listen more to the longer tracks, you can see there are actually sections. So sometimes there are like immediate changes or sudden changes, which also surprised me, you know, listening back
0: to it. Well, this one, at least you've got the two distinct sections. I was kind of actually surprised you didn't bring the, so this initial thinner guitar sound, but you know it's nice reverse reverb and things swirling around, but it's a more tinny sound than what the solo that you settle on for most of the song, that that's just there for a little bit at the beginning. I was kind of surprised it didn't come back at the end. Can you say a little about, you're deciding on the fly, okay, I'm starting the solo, I'm doing this nice melodic riff, but then within 30 seconds, you know, within a minute, okay, then forget that. <laughs> Let's crank it up to the actual power guitar lead sound.
1: You have to really imagine it as like two guys, because I can have the laptop fill in the stuff because it's looping, something that I already played. And so I can make these sound changes overlap, and that way I can create this fluid forward motion. But also I have the ability or the, you know, because I I can simply stop the looper for a moment. I can mute the loops. And that way... I can create a sudden change in the overall texture. And by acting that way, and you know, all three of us work that way, like in our own ways, we kind of give impulses to the other players to go somewhere else. And like, if you pay close attention, there's a lot of interaction between the players where you hear phrases repeating. And it was surprising for me, even like listening back, I hear like melodic phrases in the backing loop that comes from our laptop and I hear myself reacting to that. But I'm a hundred percent sure that I wasn't consciously doing that during the recording. It's only afterwards that you can like really see all the complexity. Like with bass and drums, all these unison hits that they play. And it's not pre planned, it just happens. Once you get into the zone as a player, it's a beautiful thing, really.
0: That's a matter of being in the room, but I saw you've been doing kind of a video podcast where you're doing this with other players remotely, but you can't be actually synced, right? Because the lag is, you know, it has to necessarily be something less rhythmically locked in than than what we're hearing here. That's correct. But the the funny thing
1: is that I've played with Mark Wingfield many times before, and playing remotely doesn't feel any different.
0: (laughs) So the fact that he's a second in the future, or you're a second in the future, (laughs) that there's this basic lack of synchronicity doesn't matter because of the way that you're approaching the collaboration.
1: I think it's because there is this feedback loop that you're getting, listening to the other person and the other person listening to you somehow. It can't be described with words, actually. But there is like some sort of magical connection then. Yes, I mean, if we wanted to try to play in time together... If we would approach it with that mindset, it would be frustrating, I guess. But by not even attempting to do that, things lock into place just the way they would if we were in the same room. It's really fascinating.
0: Well, it's like a conversation. You know, the fact that we're on the internet now does not affect anything. You know, maybe we might start saying something at the same time. You know, there might be a little lag issue, but for the most part, not. I've had many instances during the pandemic of large groups on different Zoom locations trying to sing happy birthday together and how hilarious. (laughs) <laughs> just start yes. and don't listen to anybody else just plow through
1: <laughs> you know the, the way that these voice transfers work voice over IP is that they kind of like slow down and speed up the sound occasionally just for things to kind of appear as if they are synced and obviously with pitch sound that doesn't work so well <laughs> But I think we're getting closer to things like this being like possible. Like I think in the near future, like the latency will be low enough so that people can actually play together without having, you know, to delay things. I know there's already technology out there that does that where both party signals are being delayed by 10 seconds or something. And then they can ensure that they're in sync somehow and I don't know how it works but it's already out there <laughs>
0: Well then you're not definitely not reacting to anything <laughs> for the listener they will be in sync Well let's get back to Swoonage for just a little more I want to play a little bit from so this is about a minute and thirty in. in the middle you've kind of just started the main guitar solo I wanted to talk about your sense of lyricism here Let's... So I guess there's something familiar about this style and very swelling. And But can you say kind of what you're thinking, what you're channeling? You were saying, I mean, this is still very melodic before the shredding has started. Is this still kind of somewhat of a, a performance, something outside your normal comfort zone? Oh, no, it
1: certainly is not out of my comfort zone. But, you know, if you ask me, like, where do these melodies come from? I have no idea. It really is magical to me as well. You need to know that part of my philosophy is to never practice music. I practice my instrument, yes, and I practice, you know, scales and technique exercises and stuff, but I never practice music. So when I get into a situation to play music, I just move my fingers and it's sort of inspiration that I don't know where it comes from.
0: Are you tapping for this solo? You know, if you said, This is a lost Hendrix track or this is a Fripp track or you know, somebody who's not tapping, it would not terribly surprise me, but that's just what you've developed. But you're saying you didn't even spend, you know, your youth like, I'm gonna learn the David Gilmore and the, the Hendrix solos and stuff that kind of as part of your guitar training.
1: You know, I'm a big fan of Mike Oldfield as a guitarist. He's like my favorite guitarist and my favorite musician ever, I would say, composer. But there's David Torn and there's Fripp, obviously, and I'm very influenced by those guys. Pat Metheny, John Schofield, like even the jazzier side of things and plenty more influences. But my approach was never to try to replicate anything. And really, like, funnily enough, it's the frip stuff that sort of I'm being associated with, because I sort of can do sort of an impersonation, which is not an impersonation. It really is me in that moment. And that's really funny. You know, it is my voice. Robert was my teacher and I would still consider him my teacher, but I was actively studying with him from 91 to 98. And I just have a lot of respect for him. I think that his vision, his musical and melodic vision, and I really think both Oldfield and Fripp, they have a lot in common that they don't really play guitar in the sense that they move their fingers in ways that the guitar suggests, but they have sort of like a musical vision that they then play on the guitar. And that's really how I see my art as well. I don't want to be influenced too much by the instrument that I play or by the technique that I use. I want to make sure that the music can come out in its purest form, if possible. Spoonage is, is a great example of that, actually.
0: Let's play where it sort of breaks into uh, shredding the first time. Which it kind of sounds like you're still tracing the same melody, but just let's add a bunch of little trills to get from one note to the other. You know, that it could still have the same downward motion or upward motion or something without the extra, but let's just add a few calisthenics in there just to... (laughs) To make it more exciting.
1: In a way, I see it a little bit like a fractal thing, right? It's still playing the same kind of overall shape, but then within that, playing the same shapes again, but faster. It's sort of ornamentation, I would probably call it. Like the ornamentation gets more complex as it goes from like a simple melody to shredding, right? But I would say that the shredding as well, for me, it was never satisfying to just do like a twiddly bit. It just doesn't work for me. Like the twiddly bit needs to be its own melody. Every single detail, and I mean, if you pay close attention, you hear that I'm using quite a lot of different articulations also, like slides and bends and hammer-ons and pull-offs and all these extended techniques. Well, that you know, the tapping in itself is an extended technique.
0: Without which playing that fast is very difficult.
1: Yeah, but you know, for me, it's a little bit like, again, like going back to Oldfield, like this idea that he was mimicking the ornamentation that bagpipe players would play, which is a little bit like a pull-off kind of thing that you can do, like these grace notes that can be very short. Short equals fast if you put them in series, right? It's kind of like grace notes, but all those notes are as important as the notes that land on the heavy beats. And there, I think I have learned a lot from Fripp and Oldfield also, where they don't really do this thing that is... Like one of the major rules that people try to teach you when you're learning jazz, that you should kind of land on a chord tone and stuff. There's something I don't do. Like, I know what it's going to sound like if I, you know, land on the second or on the fourth note of the scale, on the sixth note of the scale. And some of those things I actually do consciously. Where I know that we're playing an E, but I say, okay, I never want to end any
0: phrase on an E. Well, it sounds like we need to hear the end of the song. (laughs) Let me just play So you're just do your big pull off and then kind of stare at the end of the band like you're going to wrap up soon, right?
1: (laughs) It's funny because, as I said, it was improvised just this way. I mean, maybe there were 10 seconds before that were cut, but the end just happened like this. And if musicians listen to each other, this is something that I learned very early on. If an end appears, good musicians, they will stop playing.
0: Usually I have to resort to just jumping in the air. (laughs) Like, now we're this is the last note. So you didn't feel like, okay, I'm going to do the big end when they end. No, you got your kind of as a pickup note, I'm going to do my big burst as if you're rushing off the stage and then let them do the phrase one more time to wrap it up for real and hear the harmonics that were in the background more.
1: You have to consider the stuff that's going on in the background because that's also me playing and it's also me deciding when that stops. You hear the end of that and there's, there's a little bit of a tail at the end, but like the end of that, it's me actually pushing the V and F keys at the same time on my keyboard.
0: Before we get to the second song, let's stop and talk about our sponsors. The first of which, as I've talked about many times before, is Masterclass, where you can learn from the world's best minds at any time, anywhere, at your own pace. They've got over 90 classes from a range of world-class instructors. And of course, as Nakedly Examined music listeners, you are interested in the music courses. They have Alicia Keys on songwriting and production, St. Vincent on creativity and songwriting, Timbaland on producing and beat making. Tom Morello, Carlos Santana, Herbie Hancock, Hans Zimmer, Itzhak Perlman, Reba McIntyre, the list goes on, but with a masterclass all-access pass, you will, as I have, be looking for synergies. This time I actually wanted to talk about Nancy Cartwright teaches voice acting, a new class From one of the stars of The Simpsons, if you are a vocalist for music, maybe you want to know her vocal techniques, how to create characters. These are skills you can use in songs. She's got voice acting tips for recording, projecting emotion with your voice, and if you want to actually look into voice acting as a business thing, has a lot of information on that as well. You just never know what you're going to find on Masterclass. There's so much good stuff. I think you'll love it once you check it out. As a Nakedly Examined Music listener, you can get an annual membership to Masterclass and give one to someone else for free. Get unlimited access to every masterclass for you and a friend right now. Just go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined. I'm also excited to talk to you about Headspace, your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy to use app. It is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Maybe this is the opportunity to finally check out meditation or turn back to it if it's something you haven't tried in a while. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule, anytime, anywhere. I am just finishing up the beginner course I have poked around in other parts of the site I really find before a performance of any sort, before a podcast, if I'm feeling stressed, overwhelmed, they've got a three-minute SOS meditation and even several one-minute varieties. Some of them have to do with eating to change your attitudes towards food or there are meditations to help you fall asleep. The guided meditations, using your headphones that are already in your ear so much of the time is just very convenient, works very well. You could choose the male or the female voice. Just doing this for the last couple weeks, I have really enjoyed sinking into this ultra-relaxed state and gaining skills to be able to do that at any point, to just kind of regain control throughout the day. Apparently, just 30 days of Headspace lowers stress by 32%. Just four sessions can reduce burnout by 14%. So you deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com N-E-M. That's headspace.com slash NEM for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash NEM today. Finally, I want to tell you about ExpressVPN because it's December. The holidays are upon us, so you can officially start watching Christmas movies. But what if you go to Netflix and discover your favorite Christmas movie is not there? Well, get ready to have your mind blown. You can use ExpressVPN to watch any Netflix library in the world. So this installs in seconds. It hides your IP from the demons out there in the internet, protects your privacy, gives you online security. You can use it on any of your devices. I just went on to German Netflix. And hey, Love Actually is there if my family wants to watch that. You just open the app, hit one button to change the location, refresh Netflix, that's it. See, ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think that you're located. You can choose from almost 100 countries. That is a lot of Netflix libraries, and of course, works for other streaming services, not just for video, but for music. Try it for Apple, Spotify, Pandora. There's nothing illegal about this. It's just different countries have different licensing arrangements for different properties, and you're on the internet. It shouldn't matter where you are. If you visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash NEM, you get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So support the show, watch what you want, get your holiday fix at expressvpn.com slash NEM. Now let's get back to the interview. Let's transition to the second one, Boone, from Marcus Reuter and the Matangi Quartet, String Quartet Number 1, Heartland, 2019, I couldn't exactly get a handle on how new the writing for a classical ensemble is to you. Is that something that you were had your hand on way back in the day, or is this a pretty recent...
1: That's actually where I come from. Yeah, even before I played guitar, I played mandolin in a guitar orchestra. And I had already written music for the guitar orchestra before I had my first guitar lesson. So writing for musical ensembles has always been like my main interest, and that's where I come from. And writing for string quartet obviously was something new. I had not done that before, and it was quite challenging in a way, but also in other ways it wasn't that challenging. I spent actually a couple of years researching string quartet music to get ready for what I wanted to do. I wanted to understand what's out there. I wanted to understand what I could be adding to that genre, let's say, to that sound body that hasn't been done to death before. And it was not my idea to write a string quartet. It was the idea by the Fisher brothers, who run a label, a classical music label here in Berlin. And they are fans of what I do, and they said, "Marcus, you really need to write for string quartet." Most of the writing was not done with the sound of the string quartet in mind. It was actually done with just like very simple sine wave like sounds and like bell sounds, because I wanted to have a more puristic understanding of what which pitches I'm using, rather than all already projecting onto the sound of the string quartet. And that turned out to be a really fruitful approach. Boone is the first track of the string quartet, which is kind of like seen as a, you could say it's a song cycle. You know, it's even, you could even say it's a concept album. And it's very interesting because it has this really short motif that gets repeated and morphed throughout the piece You could say it's sort of like a miniature in terms of the material that's being used, but in terms of the effect generated, it's a really, it's a big composition.
0: Yeah, so I picked this one among the album. It was sort of the friendliest to start with. That it's still within the world of Vivaldi, <laughs> you know. That it's a darker, more Stravinsky tonality esque but it's got that eighth note thing throughout. Let's talk about that as sort of the underlying thing that you really interestingly. It always seems like it's trying to crescendo and then it falls, and then it's pushing. You know, it kind of you know Alfred Hitchcock sort of soundtrack, and that it's passing that between instruments and adding extra instruments to make that, and then it goes quieter. Did you write this song entirely linearly, or did you have the idea of like, okay, I've got the melody first, and now I'm going to beef it up, or the other way, that I'm going to start with the rhythmic elements, and then I'm going to figure out what melodies are going over it?
1: It's written as one thing, because the way I'm working is that basically I'm creating the, let's say, the pitch material first, and then I distribute those notes to the instruments so there's no melody that is kind of like assigned to one particular instrument all the elements like even like like we say like these staccato non-melodic parts let's say right they are part of the initial structure and then i just say okay here in this section this is going to be played by violin 1 and then by violin 2 etc and it's sort of like the process of composition it has two stages the first stage is to gather the material and then decide on the material and the material then from that point on is fixed i'm not going to change anything about that not going to remove anything not going to add anything and then in the act of orchestrating is as much a part of the composition as the first stage of creating the material is. And so it's really, you can think of it as deconstructing something. Like say you have a a tower made of Legos, right? And you would then pull the whole thing apart and then build another tower, but you have no idea what the original tower looked like. And that's sort of like my approach. So things get kind of atomized and then put back together into a
0: new form. And are you doing this in finale or something else where you kind of get the immediate feedback of okay i've got two measures down and i can listen to that and then what's next and
1: it's a little more complicated like on the first stage is done entirely in software that i designed and that a programmer friend coded for me and then i do the basic arrangement in a daw so not even in written score
0: playing it on guitar or on keyboard you know
1: when you're saying you're doing it just looking at it actually i can read music pretty well and I find pleasure in the structures that I can see and imagine, let's say. And then, as I said, I played it back, yes, but not with string sounds, but with bell sounds, right? So getting an idea of the flavor of that. So then the actual part of arrangement was already done with my friend Gabriel, who is a master engraver of music. And he has Finale or Sibelius, actually. And he... And I then, in Skype sessions, actually sit down and transfer my material into Sibelius. And then I ask him, please move that part there, move that part there. And we have like maybe two, three, four iterations of that, and the piece is finished. So, you know, the aspect of the engraving is part of the composition. And then I take the engraved score and I sleep on it for weeks. Then I start making some notes, like you were saying, like the dynamics in Boone. Okay, like then I start kind of like writing some dynamic markings into the score. And then once, you know, I've slept on the piece long enough, these last markings get transferred into the score and then they will get presented to the players.
0: The very beginning of the melody sounds like this is going to be a nice, sweet writing across the... <laughs> on a boat across the lake thing but very quickly like within the first 10 oh no no actually now we've got a minor version so this is sort of breaking this right from the start And I understand what you're saying then, that mostly it's the cello doing the melody, but then occasionally it passes it to the viola or something, but then it quickly goes back. Like It's sort of unexpected that it has this gravity that it keeps wanting to stay pretty low in pitch. And even if it bursts to the violins for a second, no, it's going to just go right back down.
1: Yeah, that's how it turned out in this case. Could have been completely different. (laughs) That's what I find so fascinating about the process of, of making music, of composition in particular, that at any point you can take a different fork in the road. But sort of like the musical material suggests how it wants to get
0: out there somehow so the way you you vary the eighth notes is instead of just it's you know that you're changing the rhythms in there as well as which instruments are playing it i guess i was very surprised at some of the punctuation that you put just to break up the song so here I'm about a minute 5 in That's not in line with Evil Vivaldi, as I was describing it, like that we're all going to slide together and just stop. And then later you got some sections, probably my favorite parts, where you just, everything stops and and then it's gone again. And then it kind of breathes a few times like this. Yeah, taking unexpected turns in the road as opposed to, you know, a, a fairly linear structure.
1: This section that you just mentioned there, that is the only measure in the whole piece, so the whole album, where one measure is repeated. <laughs> okay. Everything else, has no, there's no repeats. This whole idea that people have of tonality and time signatures doesn't exist in my current understanding of music anymore. Like if I'm writing for a Stickman, yeah, right? Then Then it's kind of like a riff and the riff has a certain time signature and stuff. But with the string quartet, it's really about the length of the phrase and also how the phrase wants to change its length. This is something you can also find in Boone. You will notice there is always the same motif, but it's being morphed in ways that are not just on the pitch level, but also rhythmically. And the note durations, they contract and they stretch out. There's so much detail in this that even I'm not aware of, and I'm even actually not interested in. It's just that I know that my process creates the sort of intricacies One of the main reasons why I make music is that I want to have some exciting material, some exciting music to listen to. I'm glad you're enjoying it.
0: You definitely do a lot of writing in your head as opposed to with your hands. I use that expression a lot, which usually for me that means melody and kind of the simpler, more earwormy, the better. And some of the things that you were doing in Swoonage fall into that category. With Boone, it starts as if it's going to give you a melody like that, and you're saying there's at least a motif that repeats, but it's not a motif that I could sing back to you right now, even having listened to this song several times, because it's I have a sense of that is doing some, some strange harmonic things, and uh, but like it's too unexpected and random to follow along like that. So it really is the grinding eighth notes, and then eventually sixteenth notes that you're like, that's not even enough intensity. We have to have double time now here as we're getting toward the end of the song. It's the overall mood and the energy that persists rather than the specific melody exactly and it's
1: also a little bit like just imagine you have your both hands full of marbles right and you throw your marbles on the ground and that's how i see the development of a musical piece really it's not a development as in i need to control what's happening it's just The fact that I start the process and I throw the marbles and then the way that the marbles arrange themselves as they move on the ground and eventually come to a halt, that is the piece. That's how you need to see this. So that's why at the beginning, you kind of like hear this seed and you say, oh, yeah, it's like, it's a melody like that. And then because like the marbles, like they hit each other, you know, they collide and it's this kind of idea. And the whole project was like that, you know, there was this initial seed and from it grew this collection of
0: songs. Well, you're describing just kind of letting it process in your brain this way. I thought I read somewhere that you were a fan of the sort of randomness methods of, you know, I guess associated with Brian Eno, where he'd actually use like little cards and things like, are there any more algorithmic approaches that you use in some of your compositions that this is not just organically how the ideas are playing themselves out in my head, you know, this traditional creative way, but I'm going to purposefully throw in some random or systemic or some other element to guide what the next choice is going to be.
1: I do that all the time, but I don't use random processes. I don't use those. But again, take the example of the marbles, right? If you're a physicist and you would measure, you could tell where the marbles are in 30 seconds, right? So it's deterministic. It would be, it's possible to create a mathematical equation that tells you how the piece unfolds. So, and that's how I approach it. So I sort of create the equation that is the throw of the marbles. And you're absolutely right. That's algorithmic composition. That's that first stage in the process. That's the material I was talking about. That's been generated algorithmically. And then the arrangement is the human part.
0: All right, let's introduce the third song, 1111, by a band that was called Tuner. Now it's just uh, posted as Pat Mastelato and Marcus Reuter from the album Pole 2007. This is almost 11 minutes here can you say a little about the approach here you know we've got certain commonalities with what we've heard before obviously a drummer was a co-writer in this song just that it's got such a groove but yet i don't know what time signature we're in there's extra beats here and there and then you're doing everything else except the vibes and the keyboards and the theorem here right that you're locked in doing the stick bass and the guitar work
1: Yeah, 11.11 is one of my favorite pieces, really. And it sort of started a completely new approach to composition for me. And I think it's pretty special in this context that it could still be described as a song or as a a rock tune, even just a little bit.
2: Seeing an abandoned anchor. Seeing abandoned metallic... one point one one eleven 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 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11.
0: So I don't want to get too into the details on this. Can you say a little about just the overall approach of how you and Pat were putting this kind of thing together? I assume it was you two and then the vibes and things got added later, at least conceptually.
1: Uh, Starting in 2005, Pat and I spent a lot of time at his studio in close to Austin, Texas. And we really were getting into this. Like, first of all, we are like brothers and we love each other, you know, and we have such a great time working together. It really is not work when we work together. It's a labor of love, really. And we're both very interested in experimentation and finding new sounds, finding new forms of expression, you could say. So with 11.11, it was based on sort of like an interesting... The album poll, also based on a couple of themes that run throughout the album. And 11.11 is like one variation of that theme. And the theme, you can find it in the chords here in this piece. It's like a Rhodes sound that I played with a plugin, I think. And that was like the starting point. And then there was this drum loop. It is actually a loop. The main drum beat you can hear. I think it's, I can't remember, 27 beats long or something like that that's why it's so confusing but it's a long loop but it loops throughout the whole of the piece and the chord changes they have a complex form of time signatures like it's four four six four and five four or something i can't remember the pattern now it's funny because it has like a verse that has a vocal which is like an improvised lyric where we picked a few books from pat's shelf and we opened the books and i was actually lifting up the books in front of Pat's eyes and he had the microphone in front and he was reading words and like making up these phrases from those books and it turns out again like to be a a sort of like magical combination like those words with this otherworldly Complex rhythm, right? With where the touch bass that I'm playing is kind of locked to the kick drum, which is also something we did intentionally. It's sort of kind of artificial sounding. And then we had these friends of ours, Pamela Kirsten and Laura Scarborough, come in and play uh, theremin and vibes, respectively. And I played all sorts of strummed guitars on this. You know, I, I play regular guitar as well. And the melody in the chorus, which is purely instrumental is played on an island string guitar, actually, I think, if I remember correctly. And it's just this miniature epic that tells an interesting story. I would be interested what kind of associations people have listening to this piece. For us, it was like the words are sort of things you would write down when you wake up from a dream. That was kind of like the approach. And 11, 11... Yeah, what is with the counting exactly
0: throughout the song?
1: The counting is actually my voice and the counting is i think i'm enumerating the the chords
0: i thought it was something somehow technically related but you know in the context of talking about magic and things it sounds like you're doing numerology somehow if there's
1: in a way it's numerology the uh, the compositional approach is some sort of numerology where the whole thing tries to have a bigger meaning let's say by having like a more complex Mathematical pattern to it.
0: Let me play just one part about nine fifty three in. I wrote shimmery solo.
1: <laughs> what even is that? <laughs> That's the vibraphone. Oh, okay. But backwards, just sliding the mallets on the, on the vibraphone and we reversed that.
0: All right. I just assume that you have so many effects hooked up to your guitars that you could certainly do something like that with, with a minimum of, of <laughs> difficulty. We're going to conclude here by, uh, the cult of bibiboo. A nearly 16-minute song from the Divine Bees, 2001. The name of the band is Centrozoon. Can you give a little, I guess this would be the time to, in very compactly, you've played a lot of different ensembles here. And this was, so this was the first of them that you were in this German-based group with you and a keyboardist. Can you say a little about this band and the adventure that folks are about to hear here? So
1: Centrozone—that's the German pronunciation—but Centrozone is uh, Bernhard Wurstheinrich and I, and we really just found each other as lovers of music, and we started improvising freely together, but with this setup of you know guitar, electronics, and synthesizers and sequences, which is a very much a traditional German thing, like the '70s Berlin School music with. Ashra Temple and uh, Klaus Schulze and, you know, like all those guys. And we see ourselves as a continuation of that scene, basically. And the cult of Bibi, who was like, which is kind of like a ridiculous name, which is, was trying to come like part of what we do is that we don't take ourselves very seriously. And for a while, our approach was that we really wanted to always like find the things in what we do that we don't necessarily initially like. You know, something you need to spend time with to get used to. And like all the things that seem too familiar, we kind of put aside. And Cult of Bibi was like the big breakthrough with that approach where we have had really found this uniquely psychedelic, let's say, approach to electronic improvised music. And it really is just totally wacky. And for me, it was a turning point. I mean, that really was the moment where I knew I had made a contribution to the world of music that would eventually matter. I don't know if I will ever matter or my contribution will ever matter, but it was important for me to kind of get that sense. And it was inspiring me to keep going to have found this music.
0: Well, I really like that this one. There are other long pieces that you have that are more, you know, meditative and you kind of could. I had another guy, Laraji, on as one of my recent, he also does these sometimes 40 minute. <laughs> 60 minute, you know, but you could kind of take any individual, but this one really moves somewhere. I mean, you're saying this is still all improvised. You were not, I feel like someone could write a little like fantasy video or something, you know, to to put alongside this to kind of illustrate, but you're saying this is all, you're not thinking in those kind of cinematic images as you're doing this.
1: No, but the meta improvisation was always very important to us. So we wanted not just to improvise within a form or within no form, let's say, We wanted to improvise the form as well. And that's what really the Cult of Bibiboo, the whole album, actually the version on the EP, which is called The Divine Beast, Is slightly edited, slightly shorter than the album version. All the pieces on that album, The Cult of Baby Boo, they are like really, we finally had figured out how to improvise the form and not to be a slave to the machine, let's say, to the looping delays or to the sequences, but where we could interactively, as we play, create these. Sound wells that actually have forward movement, you know, and where we can actually have sections. A little bit like what we talked about, about swoonage, the track, right? But here with CentroZoon and the Cult of Bibiwoo, it's kind of like taken to an extreme. It's machines playing, right? And that we program, that we interact with, that is the playing. And we create these sections, that was really one of my musical aims. And I'm so glad that that has become a thing. And I think it has been, you know, it's sort of become a cultural phenomenon in a way that people now, you know, consider improvisation to be something bigger than just playing like over chord changes or something like that. So like the initial idea of a more traditional jazz where the form is given, that has now been turned into something where like people improvise the form and the content. And that is very, very satisfying to me as a musician to see that that's something that people do a lot nowadays.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining me. It was really great. I'm glad that we have this last piece to really throw people in the deep end. (laughs) I feel like I chose the safest possible things, but you know, such a vast catalog, so much more time that I still want to spend in this eventually.
1: Hey, Mark, thank you so much. And it's good to meet somebody who knows what he's doing.
0: Thanks so much to Marcus. You can hear more of him at marcusreuther.com. And definitely check out his YouTube page where he essentially has a podcast exposing a lot of how his music is made, talking with people he's worked with, doing these live improvisations with other people over the internet, and we didn't have time to play any Stickmen on this interview. That was his band with Tony Levin and Pat Masolato. We did play one of his tracks just with Pat. But Stickmen's Prog Noir is a must if you are into that crimsony stuff. And they even sing on a lot of the songs. Perhaps I can get one of the other members of that group on a future episode here and you can hear some of that. In any case, I think Marcus was just about the ideal kind of guest for this podcast. Somebody who really thinks about how he does his music. If you enjoyed that, please check out my other interviews at NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. Make sure you are subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed. The next release here will be a special holiday thing, but I'll then get quickly to Don Ralph, the lead singer for Life in a Blender, a wonderful band, a very smart lyricist. I also just recently talked to Larry Keel, a hillbilly shredder, a really fast, flat-picking country guitarist and banjo player, and a good singer-songwriter part of that progressive bluegrass tradition if that makes sense i hope if you really like this that you will give a nice rating or review on the itunes store or wherever you listen to this and perhaps even support me at patreon.com slash nakedly examined music which will give you access to the ad free fee that includes some bonus content and if there's demand i'm gonna actually start posting the notes i take for these episodes you might want to listen to the songs while following along to how i charted it out but I encourage supporters, if you really want me to post those, to contact me through Patreon or reach out to me through mark at You can also suggest guests, suggest yourself as a guest. Let me know any other feedback you might have on the show. Hope you're all having a wonderful December in so much as this is possible. Keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Linton-Meyer signing off.